Good morning again. As I said, it's uh, my great privilege to be here with you uh, at this church that the Lord is evidently blessing uh, so much in growth and uh, in, in spiritual growth in, in how the Lord is changing you and, and using you all for his service both here and around the world. Thankful for that. Um, we already read our passage from Leviticus chapter 19. You can open your Bibles uh, there, and we will be returning to that text as we make our way through it and discover what the Lord would have to teach us from his word today. Uh, many of you would be familiar with the ministry of John Piper, uh, a former pastor. I won't say retired pastor because I think he would uh, not like that description. He's not collecting seashells on a beach somewhere. Um, but a former pastor, he's a teacher and, and writer who's continuing to serve the Lord through Desiring God Ministries. He's written more than 50 books. Several of those books uh, I'm thankful for personally have been translated into Arabic. So we have them available in our place of ministry he has sold more than a million copies of these books, but before writing any of them, I believe, he signed over the rights to all of the royalties to any books that he would write so that all the money goes to a charitable foundation, a Christian ministry. Uh, this man could be a millionaire, literally a millionaire, but he has chosen to devote his wealth to the ministry. Now, I don't want to exalt him. He's just a man. I'm grateful for him and his faithfulness, but he's just a man that the Lord has used. And many of you um, are, are likewise demonstrating just generosity in your lives and serving the Lord in that way. But he is an example of generosity and love for neighbor. Does he deserve to earn the money from these books that he has written? Absolutely. That's his right. He, he wrote them. It would not be stealing, but it would be just taking what is his due. But he's freely chosen to give. And one of the reasons for that is because love for God and love for people is more important. Amy Carmichael said, you can always give without loving, but you can never love without giving. That's very true. So Leviticus, uh, the source of our text today, is a book that we often ignore. Uh, it's a challenging book, sometimes a weird book, reading plans in a year. Those aspirations go to die sometimes, getting caught up in the blood and the animals and the sacrifices and, and a system that we, we don't often understand or appreciate. But it is an excellent book. It's inspired word of God, and it has something special to, to offer. Without the, the book of Leviticus, our Bibles would be missing something critical. The theme of the book of Leviticus is holiness. God is holy, and because of that, we must be holy. For this reason, the reason of holiness there's a focus on animal sacrifices because these sacrifices, these, this blood shedding was necessary to give access to God because of sin. We are to be holy, but we are not. And therefore, blood sacrifice is necessary to atone for our sins. 
all of these concepts point forward to the sacrifice of Christ because we know the blood of bulls and goats can never atone for sin, but only a perfect sacrifice, the God-man who became flesh for us, died on the cross, raised again, seated at the right hand of the Father. He is the one, his sacrifice made it possible for us to have access to God. And if you like to pair Old Testament texts or Old Testament books with New Testament books, Leviticus and Hebrews make a great combination. As Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, expounds on much of what we find in Leviticus and shows how Christ is the fulfillment and is the greater part of the system that we see in the book of Leviticus. So Leviticus really is about the theme of holiness, but there's another theme, a secondary but important theme in the book of Leviticus, and that is love. So in our chapter, in chapter 19, verse 2, we start out with holiness. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. But as we continue, we transition into a text, our text for this morning, from verses 9 to 18 that focuses on how we can love our neighbors, how we can love the people who are around us. And in fact, our text concludes in verse 18 with these famous words that we know probably first and foremost from the New Testament and the lips of Jesus, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But they're originally found here in God's Old Testament law. So God doesn't just care about holiness in the Old Testament, but he also cares about how we love. And holiness and love we often think of as contradictory or at least two separate things. Like you should have this and you should also have this, but they're not connected in any way. Well, they're not contradictory and they're not disconnected. In fact, holiness and love go together and must be found together. If without holiness, there's no love. Without love, there's no holiness. It's not, I'm so holy that I can't love people who are less holy than me. That's not holiness. And it's not, I'm so loving that I ignore sin in my life and in the lives of other people. That's not loving. Holiness and love have to go together. These two concepts are connected in Scripture, and they're especially connected in our text. And there's a hint of that in verse 12 that we read a moment ago, where he says, you shall not swear falsely by my name so as to profane, that's the important word, profane the name of your God. Well, profane means to make something or treat something as unholy. So the concept of holiness is found in our text as well. You shall not profane the name of the Lord your God, treat it as unholy while you are loving me and loving other people. So they're not contradictory. In fact, they're inseparable, holiness and love. Because to be holy is to be different. It literally means to be set apart, separate from, dedicated for special use. You might have special china, uh, special dishes that you use in your house. They are holy in a sense. They are dedicated, separate for everyday, uh, not for everyday use, but for special use. Because the world lacks love, to be holy or to be separate from the world... One of the things that this means is that we are full of love. 
To be separate from the world, to be dedicated toward God, is to be full of love for God and for other people. So, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The central principle of this text that we see this morning, Leviticus 19, 9 to 18, is you must love those around you by giving them what you owe, meeting their needs, and not taking advantage of them. Giving them what you owe, meeting their needs, and not taking advantage of them. Well, a few more comments before we jump into the text and look at it in detail. I just want to answer one question related to the Old Testament law that can be a tricky one. And we're not going to give it the most full and complete answer that we could in just these few minutes. But I do want to introduce you to or remind you of some things that that I hope you already know, which is what is the relationship between the Old Testament law and the New Testament believers? We're living in New Testament times, right? We don't live in the time of Moses. We're not in Israel. We don't have a priesthood, uh, a temple, or those things. We're living in a different era than they lived. Does this apply to us? How does it apply to us? What are we to do uh, at the bottom of your, your sheets there, or in the middle of the sheet, you have a very blank outline, but hopefully it'll be very clear and you can fill it in. But at the bottom there, I noticed uh, that there's an application question, a place to write how this is going to change you this week. And there will be something, hopefully more than one thing, to write there. Because this Old Testament law does apply to us, but we need to think carefully about the how. So a few important points. As Paul says, we are not under the law. You can see this in 1 Corinthians 9.20. You can see it in Galatians 5.18. We are not under the law. The law was given in a particular time, in a particular place, to a particular people for particular reasons. There were It was part of a covenant. God made a covenant, an agreement with his people. He said, I'm going to give you a law. This is like what you are to do. And if you do it, this will happen. And if you don't do it, that will happen. So if you're obedient, you will be blessed in the land, the the promised land that I've given to you. You will stay in it. You'll be prosperous. You'll never want anything. And you'll be at peace. Because I, the Lord your God, as part of this covenant, will guarantee that for you. But if you are disobedient, you are going to be kicked out of the land. Is that what happened? That's exactly what happened. 70 years in Babylon, and then a return because God is gracious. So that was God's covenant. That was his plan and purpose with them. And he was living or he was dealing with them based on how he told them in advance he would. But we're not living in that time. We're not in Israel. We're not under the law in the same way. We live in a different dispensation, if you want a technical and big term for that. So we don't have a sacrificial system. We have a secular government. We don't have God as our king or, or a chosen one from the line of Judah as our king. But we have the American government to which we are called to submit, according to Romans 13. There's also many differences or distances between us and them that we have to bridge. So, for instance, they lived in an agrarian society. They had oxen and orchards. We have cars and computers. 
Our life is different from their life. So when we read about oxen or we read about crops, we have to translate those to our different and changing uh, world. I was recently given a, a, a gift, a, a water bottle, and it's great. It's a good size. I love it. I'm using it. Um, but it, it came with a USB charger cable. That was new to me. Uh, we're living in a new world. The water bottles that, that you can plug in. All right? So this, our time is different from theirs, and it's different even than it was 50 years ago. So we need to translate if we want to make application to our world to today. They were also living in a theocratic kingdom. God was their king. He was ruling over them. So, as we said, we obey the laws of the United States of America. That's what God has called us to do. There are exceptions to that, but as a general rule, we submit to and honor and obey the civil government. In spiritual matters, we submit to the spiritual authority of the church elders as they lead from the word of God. That is some of the differences between us and them. But... The point that I want to leave with you now is Leviticus and all of the law contained in the Old Testament is still the word of God for us today. When we are able to make that translation, we're able to take the moral principles found in the word of God, be it Old Testament or New Testament, and apply them today, making appropriate adjustments for the different time and place in which we live, we find that there is much to be applied today, that we have the same God that we live in the same fallen world that they did thousands of years ago. Human nature has not really changed. It's not changed at all. Different expressions of sin that we see today, but same hearts, same human hearts. And our God is the same. So in this text, Leviticus chapter 19, verses 9 to 18, there's 10 verses Each set of two verses is going to be one command or group of commands, one point. And so we're going to go two by two through these verses, and we're going to see five ways that I can love my neighbor. Five ways to love a neighbor. And the first way in verses 9 and 10 is don't be greedy. Let me read those verses for us again. Now, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. So this command, don't be greedy, deals with our relationship to the poor, to someone who has less than I do to someone who is in need. And the central command is to leave the gleanings for the needy and the stranger. The command here is to be generous with others. We must not keep everything for ourselves, but we are to live our lives, as it were, with an open hand, being generous and freely giving to those who are in need as it would help them. This command is also found in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 19 to 21. You don't need to turn there, but just know that it's there. It also includes a couple of details not found in our text. For instance, instance, it mentions the orphans and the widows, those who would 
in, especially in that society, be particularly in need and probably poor because of their circumstances. Deuteronomy also mentions the promise of God's blessing for those who would obey this command. So what is this command calling the people to do? It required a farmer to leave some of his crops for the poor to collect. So in that day, they would have crops, let's say barley, and they would be reaping that crop during the harvest season. Someone might be walking by with a sickle and cutting the stalks of barley. Someone may come behind and be collecting up those stalks so that then they could collect the good fruit, uh, the good crop from it and separate it. But as they were cutting and as they were collecting, the command that was being given here is don't collect 100%, but leave something behind as you go. Don't send a third person in to pick up every little thing that fell behind. And also, when you go to the corners, you can leave a little bit on the corners. Leave a little bit there that you don't even have to cut or you can cut it and just leave it piled there. You don't have to collect everything on your fields. You should not collect everything from your fields, but you should leave it for those who are in need. And the same thing if you had an olive tree or a grapevine, that you don't have to beat all of the fruit out of the tree or the vine or pick it all, but you can leave some there. You should leave some there, must leave some for those who are in need. And I love that there's, there's a couple of great things that I love about this. God in his wisdom gave this one. This is a responsibility for all the people because most of the people at that time were farmers or had an orchard. God said he divided up the land, not just among the 12 tribes, but among all the, the families. So everybody had an inheritance. Everybody uh, was a land owner. And even if you had to, to sell your land in the law, there was provision that that land would come back to you and your family at some point. So everybody was a landowner. Everybody had something to provide for themselves. But if for any reason you were not able to provide for yourselves with your own land, it was a responsibility of everybody in the nation to take care of everybody else, right? To leave fruit, to leave crops available for those to take. And the other great principle about this is it required work from those who were to be collecting. This wasn't just a free handout. You had to come out into the field in, in, in the heat and, and suffer a long day's work in order to benefit from that. So the opportunity was given, but in a way that supported diligence in your own life. And we see that this law worked. In the best of circumstances, when the people obeyed God's word, this worked. In Ruth chapter 2, Ruth gleans and Boaz, as the landowner, allowed that. And Ruth was able to provide for herself as a widow and for her mother-in-law as well, another widow. And God used that in their life as they were being faithful to him to provide for them and ultimately to bring Ruth into the community of Israel and be part of the line of the Messiah. It's an amazing thing. So we are called to do that same thing in our day, to live our lives with the open hand, to be generous to others. That may be in your business, providing a job for someone who is in need and not only considering qualifications, but perhaps also considering the need of that person, if that's acceptable, um, as a determiner there, um, or providing for neighbors, helping someone out in a, in a practical 
way with their bills or with uh, anything that they may be in need of as it would be helpful to them. There's an important phrase at the end of this section, and in fact, it's at the end of every section. Each five, each of the five sections in this text ends in a similar way. He says in verse 10, I am the Lord, your God, or we could say, I am Yahweh, your God. When you see Lord in all caps like this, as it will appear in your old testaments, this represents Yahweh, the personal name of God. So we could say, I am Yahweh, your God. What is the significance? One of this repeated statement, I am Yahweh, your God, but two of the name itself. What is God trying to teach us here? The first thing is this is not just about horizontal relationships between people. The motivation for having proper horizontal relationships with the people around us is this vertical relationship between us and our God. So in the Old Testament, God revealed to himself with a personal name, Yahweh. He doesn't use that name in the New Testament. It's not found. Um, But we do have a personal name to, to hang on to in the New Testament. Jesus, our Savior, the second member of the Trinity who became flesh for us. So God in the Old Testament revealed himself as Yahweh. And the name Yahweh means he is. That's what the word Yahweh means he is. So when God says it, he says, I am that I am. And when we say it about him, we say, Yahweh, he is. That's what God taught his people to say. That's how he taught them to know him in a personal way. And I think there's at least three things that we can learn from this. One, coming from the meaning of the name, God is. He exists apart from anything else. And he is the source of all things. He's the creator and sustainer of life. He doesn't need us. We need him. He's the one who provides for us, who gives to us, who loves us and enables us to give toward and love others. A second thing is God exists with us. He is, he's a personal God who is present with us to encourage us and help our obedience and also to know when we are not obeying him. So this is a strong motivating factor. The Lord is with us seeing if we're obeying or not. And thirdly, he is a personal God. Just the fact that he has a name shows us this. They had gods in the Old Testament. They were not real but there were people all around Israel who worshipped other gods. Uh, Baal, um, Asherah, Dagon, Mot. You may see them in various places in Scripture. These were gods. They had names. They had personalities. They had characteristics. And Yahweh is saying, I am real, more real than any of them. I am a personal God with characteristics. I am just, I am holy, I am truthful, I am loving. And because I am this way, you are to be this way. Baal and Asherah and all of those others, they were not just, they were not loving, they were not morally pure, even though they were considered to be divine beings. And so they would offer, or they they would allow people to serve them and worship them by committing gross sexual acts or by violent acts of sacrificing their children. That was pleasing to these false gods. And he says, no, I'm not like that. I am distinct from them. I am Yahweh. You know who I am. You know what I'm like. And for that reason, you are to act accordingly in your obedience toward me. So our relationship with God is expressed through knowing he is Yahweh He wants us to know that that's who he is. 
by respecting his name, that's mentioned in verse 12. It's interesting that he says, do not swear falsely by my name so as to profane the name of your God. What is this name? Yahweh. He did not want them to besmirch his name and, and, and he wanted them to respect it instead. And also he mentions in verse 14 that you would revere your God. So clearly there is an importance of this relationship with God as we are called to serve those people who are around us. I am Yahweh, your God. So that's the first command. Don't be greedy. Live your life with an open hand, ready to serve and give and help. The second of our five ways to love your neighbor is don't cheat. So let's read verses 11 and 12 again. You shall not steal nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. You shall not swear falsely by my name, so as to profane the name of your God. I am Yahweh. So this is dealing with people in the market. The first command relates to dealing with the poor. This command relates to dealing with people in the marketplace. It's a command not to cheat others, not to steal or to lie, or to cheat, these related commands. We must not use our words to speak untrue things in order to take advantage of others. So this may apply to you in your business, in the business world. It may apply to you in your personal life as you're buying or selling a used car, or dealing with a contractor, or maybe you are that contractor working for someone in every arena of life where we are trading goods and services for money, we are to do so in an upright way as believers in Jesus Christ, as followers of the one true God. So these commands in this text, especially these three commands that I just mentioned, they correspond to the Ten Commandments. And so we have the Ten Commandments as the basic framework of the law in the Old Testament, and then throughout Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, you have expansions of these commands and additional descriptions of how we are to live. So in Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, you have the third commandment about swearing falsely, about not taking the name of the Lord in vain, also mentioned here. Exodus 20, verse 15, the eighth commandment against stealing. And Exodus 20, verse 16, the ninth commandment, about lying and perjuring or lying in court. So all of these things are mentioned uh, in the, the, the Ten Commandments. They're part of the framework of God's law for his people. And these commands are also found in the New Testament, just in case you're inclined to think, well, it's only in the Old Testament, so maybe I don't have to obey it. Ephesians 4.28, don't steal. And what's the antidote to stealing or the opposite of stealing? It's not just not stealing, but it's instead working hard and what? Being generous, giving. That's the opposite. Or Colossians chapter 3, verse 9, don't lie to one another. These same commands are mentioned throughout the New Testament. Uh, Many of them apply directly without even bridging a contextual gap. They're, they're just so familiar to us and similar to how we live our lives today. General truths that we can apply. 
Well, who are we to treat this way? In, in, in verse, uh, let's see here, verse um, 11 that we just read, do not steal nor deal falsely nor lie to one another. So that's one description of who it is that they were called to um, treat this way. But we see throughout this text that there are many names that are used or many titles that are used to describe the people toward whom I am to show love. So you have the poor, you have your neighbor, brother, sojourner, the deaf, the blind, the hired worker, the sons of your people, and one another. So you can see there are terms that are used that are broad descriptive terms, and there are terms there that are used to narrow and focus on specific groups toward whom we have responsibilities. This is a wide and varied group of people. It refers, I think we can say it refers to whoever is standing in front of me and needs my help. That's my neighbor. That is the person whom I am called to love. Remember in the New Testament, that there was a man who was an expert in the law and he came to Jesus and he says, okay, rabbi, maybe you can solve this conundrum for us. This difficult question of who is my neighbor? Certainly this man and others were seeking a loophole, right? Who is my neighbor? Probably he's an Israelite. You don't have to love other people outside of that. Probably he's someone who follows the religion closely. So he's a Pharisee or, or at least a devout Jew, you know, they want to narrow it. We want to narrow the scope of who, who, who it is that we are called to, to love and serve. But Jesus wouldn't allow that. He showed them that we shouldn't limit the scope of neighbor. We shouldn't look for these exceptions. We're trying to seek out whom we may serve, not whom we can get out of it, whom we can avoid serving. So the Samaritan who helped the Jew in Jesus' parable had little in common with him. There were different ethnicities, different religions. The Samaritans did not worship like the Jews did. You see that in John 4. Uh, they didn't know each other at all. These men were perfect strangers. But he helped the person who was standing in front of him, even though the religious people passed by and didn't help. So that's who we're called to love. Call him your brother, your neighbor, the person standing in front of you, we are called to love and serve one another. Now, in the New Testament, I love it, how it says in Galatians that do good to all people, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So I think we have a special responsibility mandated by Scripture to help and serve those who, for you guys, are in Grace Bible Church or for other Christians and believers that you know. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we're part of a family. We should help each other out. But it's not limited to or exclusive of that group. We are called to love and serve and help others who are not believers in Jesus Christ, but need to know him. We could proclaim the gospel to them and we must, but we can also serve them. So five ways to love your neighbor. Don't be greedy. Don't cheat. And number three, don't oppress. Don't oppress verses 13 and 14. You shall not oppress your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. You shall not curse a deaf man nor place a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall revere your God. I am Yahweh. 
So don't oppress your neighbor. Don't rob him. Pay the wages that you are, that, that you owe. And don't mock those who are disabled. So this is dealing with those who are disadvantaged. These uh, this is dealing with others in a situation where I have some kind of social or or legal or or political advantage over that person. I'm in a different strata. I maybe have money and they don't. I am an able-bodied person and this person isn't. Or I'm the employer and this person is dependent uh, on me for their wage, for their living. In any case where I have some advantage, natural advantage over another person, I am called not to make use of that advantage to harm that person and help myself, but to take good care of that person. You know, these are actions that otherwise might not be illegal. They're mentioned in the law here that you are not to do them. So for the the Israelites, they would have been illegal according to God's law. But, you know, there's maybe no law in, in, in America against cursing a deaf person, okay? Um, there's, you know, maybe no law against taking advantage of some, you know, tax situation or, or legal situation to take advantage of another person. So it may not be illegal, but it is cruel and unkind and hurtful toward the other person. And one example would be withholding pay. And I don't know, maybe you have experienced this in your job where your employer didn't give you what you were owed in terms of pay or the benefits or your retirement or whatever it was. You didn't get what you rightfully should have received. And God says, this is unacceptable. This is not how we are to treat other people. We are to act with them in a moral and ethical and kind way. He mentions the term robbing here. This is different from stealing. It's basically to take by force. The same word would be used if you were plundering. So if you're going to battle, you're defeating that person and then you get to, you know, to the victor goes the spoils, you, you take what was theirs in battle. That's the same word, to, to take something that belonged to, by, to someone else, to take it by force. So this would be a seizure. Um, we would use the term foreclosure uh, in, in our day. So you could imagine a situation, there are, you know, legal and proper ways in which foreclosure can take place, but that could also be done in a way that is cruel and underhanded and unloving and unjust, even if it's legal. And we are called in any situation where we have that ability to take something that belongs to someone else, just because it's legal doesn't mean it's okay. We are not to take advantage of other people. You know, in that time they had people who were day laborers. They would work a day and they would receive pay and they would use that to pay for food for their families. Maybe they didn't get to save any of it for the future. They're living paycheck to paycheck and that paycheck is coming every day as they serve in these fields. This happened in the New Testament as well. You remember a person would receive a denarius. That was a day's wage. You work a day, you get a denarius. That's how you feed your family and take care of them. 
Same thing in the Old Testament times. There were people working hard, long days out in the field, and they were supposed to get pay at the end of every day. Just because you're rich and you have all this land and you're sleeping on a soft pillow tonight doesn't mean that it's okay. Oh, I just forgot. You know, maybe in that case, that person should be called to get up in the middle of the night, go find that person and make sure that him and his family have enough to eat. Okay, just because I'm comfortable doesn't mean that's a right to to take advantage of other people who are much less in need, who may be living even in you know modern day America, paycheck to paycheck for various reasons. And we need to be careful. You know, we don't want to allow people to take advantage of the system, but we also don't need to judge other people without knowledge and just think, well, probably he made a lot of bad life choices and that's why he's here. We may or may not know the answer to those questions. And so we need to be wise and judicious, but we need to be ready to help others. We see the same command in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 14 and 15. And the command is to pay the needy one before the sun goes down. Because this person is in a vulnerable position. We see this in James chapter 5, verse 4 in the New Testament. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Another group that we're not to take advantage of is those who are disabled bodily in whatever way. Could be deafness, it could be blindness, it could be lameness. But he gives two examples here. One is of the deaf. Don't curse the deaf person. I don't see how there would be any advantage to cursing a deaf person except for just cruelty because, haha, he can't hear me when I say what I'm saying about him. I think this is just cruel joking. Just taking advantage of a person who has some disability to say, you know, I can get some instant gratification and entertainment value out of this situation. The same thing with stumbling the blind. It's not like robbery or anything. It's just I'm gaining some sort of sadistic pleasure watching this other person uh, stumble and fall. This is a person who's made in the image of God. And God probably made them that way. If they're there from birth... This, this, this is God's will. This is what, how God made that person. So I'm not special because I have all my limbs or my hearing works. I am called to be kind and helpful and loving toward those who don't have all the advantages I have. So the key command here is not to take advantage of people who are vulnerable in society. Instead, we should serve them and help them without taking away their dignity. You know, at my home church um, in, uh, I have two home churches. I have my home church in Lebanon and I have my home away from home church in uh, South Lake Countryside Bible Church. Um, very, very like-minded sister church to you all. Um, I'm sure there's some of you have personal uh, connections there. Um, I'm familiar with their ministries that they do, so I'll just give them as an example. I'm sure you all are doing much as a church to serve the disadvantaged and needy. They have a special needs ministry there that allows, for instance, children to attend Sunday school with other children, even though they're not at the same grade level or social uh, ability to interact. 
Uh, they have an international friends ministry where they teach English to those who are um, international, coming from another country and need that English as a second language help. A medical clinic, uh, a group who, who does building projects, home improvement projects for those within the church. Um, I'm sure you all are serving in many similar ways in your church, either on an individual basis or as a church. And the Lord loves that. This, this causes the Lord to smile when we don't take advantage of those who are needy, but we in fact do what Christians do, which is love and help and serve others. So don't be greedy, don't cheat, don't oppress. And the fourth way that I can love my neighbor is don't wrong. Don't wrong, verses 15 and 16. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. You shall not go about as a slander among your people, and you are not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am Yahweh. So we are not to do injustice. And there's uh, two specific arenas that this addresses. One is the legal court. And the second arena is what we might call the court of public opinion, the court of people's reputations in their community. We are not to do damage to people unjustly by judging them inappropriately. We're not to show favoritism not to show favoritism to the rich or to the poor. We're called to help the poor, but that doesn't mean that they can get away with murder. Okay? Justice sees everybody uh, the same, in a sense. If you commit a crime, you are liable for punishment for that crime, no, regardless of the circumstances. And so we're to treat people that way. And James 2 talks about this, mistreating poor people who come into the church. The rich man comes in and say, hey, man, we got a great place for you. And the poor person comes in, you know, move along, get to the side. We are not to do that. Also, we are not to go about as a slanderer, using the court of public opinion to harm someone, to say things that may or may not be true, may or may not be verified, but the only intention of me sharing this information with another person is to harm this one that I know, to lower his reputation in the eyes of another person. Talking about it in a way that doesn't help him and doesn't help the situation, but probably just makes me look a little better because, well, at least I don't do what that guy does. And there's an interesting phrase here in the New American Standard. It says, don't act against the life of your neighbor. Uh, literally, it says, don't stand on the blood of your neighbor. I'm glad that they gave a little bit of interpretive translation here because we wouldn't automatically know what that means. Don't stand on the blood of your neighbor. But it, it, this is a good translation. Don't stand against the life of your neighbor because in the blood of a person, as the Bible says, is found the life. It represents the life of the person. So we're not to do anything that would harm another person in an unjust way. There's no, that, mean, that doesn't mean there's no place for discipline or, or punishment or you know, getting things that, that are unpleasant in our lives that are going to, in the end, cause us to, to grow and develop and be better off. But we are not to hurt people for hurting's sake. Psalm 15 that was read as a scripture reading this morning gives many of these same commands and tells 
how a person must be if he is to live in God's presence. And it says, he who does these things will never be shaken. All throughout the scripture, the law, the rest of the Old Testament, the New Testament, God says, this is how you are to be as my people. You're different from the world. God cares about how we live. Now, can we make ourselves holy? Can we make ourselves good enough to be in God's presence? Absolutely not. That's why Christ died. Not just to show us what love looks like, but to actually pay the price for our sins. Because we can't live like this on our own. Like Psalm 15 describes, like Leviticus 19 describes. That's not who we are by our nature, by the fallen nature that we inherited from Adam. So therefore we need Christ. But as those who are living in Christ, our identity is in Christ, this is our new nature. This is who we are called to be. We will not achieve that perfectly. It says in 1 John, when we see him, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. But we are to strive for that. That is the standard of holiness that we would long to achieve. So, five ways to love your neighbor. Don't be greedy. Don't cheat. Don't oppress. Don't wrong. And don't hate. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. So you shall not hate, nor take vengeance, nor bear any grudge. This is dealing with those who harm you. This is not just some random person in your life. You don't know if they're good or bad or whatever. This is not a friend that you that, that you like and that you always get along with and he has a need and you're helping him. This is someone who has really hurt you, that has caused pain in your life. What do we do with this situation? And this command gets to the heart. Just like the Ten Commandments ends with a command, you shall not covet, that zooms in on your heart. It's not just about the externals. This command gets to the heart. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. God cares about what's happening inside of us. Not just what we do on the outside. We are called not to hate. No one else may ever know it. But we are still called to love one another from our hearts. So what do I do if someone wrongs me? You know, the first response is cover and forgive and tolerate and let it go. If you can just let it go, let it go. That doesn't mean it's not sin. That doesn't mean it didn't hurt you, but you're showing patience just like God shows patience with us. We don't have to correct each other every time we do something that's wrong. Uh, you know, if my wife corrected me every time I was proud or said something I shouldn't or was just, you know, generally annoying, I would never get anywhere, right? And that's the same is true for all of us. So we have to tolerate and forgive and love one another and be patient. But sometimes it can't be just ignored or tolerated. 
Sometimes we have to speak up because it rises to a certain level of offense or it's an ongoing pattern that's harmful to this person and others around them. So what are we called to do? According to this passage in Leviticus and other passages throughout Scripture, we're called to speak up. He says, you may surely reprove, you, you reprove your neighbor. Tell him, this is wrong. This hurt me. Just like Jesus said in Matthew 18 or Matthew 7, show him his fault. Talk to this person, ask questions, see what's going on. How can I help? I see this, some, this pattern in your life that's, that's hurting you. Do that, but don't just ignore it and hold a grudge against the person. If you can tolerate it, tolerate it. If it's not tolerable, speak up. But you may not hold a grudge against this person, hate him in his in your heart because of what he's done, and then just use that as, as a weapon against him in your mind every time something else comes up. Uh, one writer said, it is the truest expression of love to our neighbor that when we see him doing wrong, we rebuke him. If done in the right way, yes, that is a true act of love. Showing another person his fault. Because it's not pleasant for anybody. Those conversations are not fun. And, and he says here, but you shall not incur sin. It's literally and shall not incur sin. It's not a but, it's a, just an and. You, so he says, you reprove your neighbor and not incur sin because of him. I think it's so that you don't incur sin because of him. He's sinning. You got to say something, speak up, show him his fault. And hopefully he will repent and turn away from that. But don't just, you know, eh, let it go because the guilt may fall on you as well because you knew about it and didn't say anything. But certainly don't hate him in your heart or then exercise vengeance against him or, or bear a grudge against this person. That is what we are called to do, to love others, even those who have hurt us, who have wronged us. It's not saying it's not wrong that what that person did was okay. It's saying, even though he did what was wrong, you don't have a right to hate him. You must forgive him. You know, when, when Jacob, that trickster, stole his brother's birthright, was that wrong? Yeah, absolutely. But Esau had no right to hate him and hold bitterness against him in his heart. So as we think about all these commands, you know, we should ask ourselves the question, why do I act how I do? Why do I neglect to help others? Why do I harm others? I encourage you to think about that, meditate on that. What is it that is causing me to avoid doing the good that I know I should do or to do the wrong that I know I shouldn't do? Things to think about. Lastly, we come to the key statement of the text. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Loving God, loving others. These are the two great commandments. Okay. God gave 10 commandments in the Old Testament. Jesus said, I'm going to simplify it for you even further. There's two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. So these 10 verses that we just looked at flesh out for us what love for neighbor is, what love means. But if we don't remember all the details of this passage, love is the go-to principle. 
love understood correctly, not according to the world's definition, but according to the Bible's definition, love for neighbor, that's the principle. If you're loving your neighbor, you're doing well. If you're loving your neighbor, you will succeed. If you are loving your neighbor, you will act toward him or her in a way that is helpful, in a way that God requires. Romans 13 verses 9 and 10 says, For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. We know those commands, right? If there's any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. It's not just a bunch of rules. It's about how we love God and how we can love those who are around us who are in need who are disadvantaged, who wrong us, we are called to love them all and serve them by God's grace. And we must thank God, first and foremost, that he loved us and gave us the ability to love others and marvel at the love of God. So don't be greedy, don't cheat, don't oppress, don't wrong, and don't hate. May we love those who are around us by giving them what we owe, meeting their needs, and not taking advantage of them. As believers in Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, we have the ability and the responsibility to treat others this way. We're not going to do it perfectly, but we can, by God's grace, love others and so demonstrate the faith that is in us. This is different from the behavior of the world, but it is like our God. We are never more like our God than when we are loving others. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're grateful that you loved us first with an amazing love, a gracious love, an overwhelming love that we did not deserve at all. Thank you that you have given us the the privilege and the responsibility to love others, to be your hands and feet to serve others on this earth, Lord, and so demonstrate the love of Christ. Thankful for Jesus, Lord, and we pray these things in his name. Amen.